0: Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one is actually probably going to be a two-parter. Callan, who writes the uh, the scripts for these podcasts slash YouTube shows, he wrote me a message was like, Simon, this one's setting it to be really, really long, and if you're watching this, you can probably see the size of the script, Maybe you can hear that, the script that I have in front of me. And he was like, Simon, I can cut it down and get rid of some really good stuff, or, or... I could just make it a two-parter. So Callum has decided to write us a book, which I shall read. Uh, what happens here, if you're new, is uh, Callum will write me this script. I'm going to read it. I'm going to add my own commentary when I see fit. And uh, that's that's pretty much what The Casual Criminalist is. Uh, if you haven't left us a review wherever you get this podcast, if you are indeed watching it as a podcast or listening to it as a podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your Google. is apparently popular. I didn't even know Google had podcasts until uh, I started doing this show. and uh, Or if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, of course. Let's just jump in. You guys are not here for me to plug stuff. You're here for some crime. What is this one even about? I don't even know. Well, I kind of vaguely know, but let's just jump in. That's how we do it here. There's no two ways about it. We're living in a golden age of great telly. Oh boy, are we? Although I do miss Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, it's been way too long. I want that show back immediately. Sure, there are plenty of fresh duds being pumped out by Netflix each week, yet the I, I used to feel that when Netflix made a show, like when Netflix made House of Cards, I was like, wow, all Netflix shows are going to be good. And now it's like, uh, if it's a Netflix show that I haven't heard of, it's probably going to be a bit trashy. Hunt or be hunted. But for every piece of trash, there's another pure gem. The kind of show that keeps you gripped for days on end. Oh my god, like Queen's Gambit was amazing. When reality is so dismal and boring, these can be a vital source of escapism. So it's no wonder that so many people want to imitate their TV idols. Oh, I know, I immediately know, I totally forgot what this one is about. This one's about Dexter, the Dexter killer. Dexter was an incredible TV show that I loved. That's why I like to spend my Saturdays in Lannister plate mail, battling Northmen, or violently assaulting Scottish people in Tesco, as the judge calls it. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) I'd be the first to admit that passion for a good story can make us do some pretty crazy things, and it's undeniable that some TV shows are definitely better off not Imitated. You can consider today's case a warning in that regard. So, before you go blowing up your garage with that breaking bad meth lab, have a listen to the story of Mark Twitchell, the criminal whose silver screen obsession went just a little bit too far. The man. This story takes place in Edmonton, Canada, where Mark Twitchell was born in 1979. His love affair with TV and cinema went far beyond that of your average, sofa-bound binge watcher. From a young age, Mark had aspirations of making it big in Hollywood. Statistically, Marks, that's not going to happen. Back in the mid-2000s, he was working hard towards their goal. This was the era of CSI Miami and True Blood, before Lost had degraded from trippy fever dream into a basin of feverish sick. Ah, oh, Lost was the biggest disappointment. Well, I guess there's nothing I can say that's going to change your mind. I loved that show. That show was coming out uh, while I was in my first uni- year of university. I think there were maybe three seasons out by the time I was a fresher in university. And oh boy, the amount of watch uh, of Lost I watched, Hungover was extraordinary, and that show was extremely compelling until the end came, and it was like, well, that's a bit shit. Um, yeah, so Lost, not really worth, not really worth it in the end. The show closest to the heart of the aspiring writer director, however was Dexter. In case you were born yesterday and somehow got parental permission to listen to me describe murder scenes, yeah, what are you doing on this podcast if you, you shouldn't be young if you're listening to this, but the one we did about that Canadian pig serial killer, I'm not sure if that's come out because I don't always publish these in orders, in order, but oh my god, that was intense, like after that, for the rest of the day, I was like, oh, I'm not in a good mood and I don't know why, oh, oh, it's because I spent my whole afternoon talking about a man who just killed dozens of people and ground up their bodies. That's why. (laughs) Dexter was a series from the Showtime network which wrapped up in 2013. It tells the story of a forensic analyst who moonlights as a serial killer and uses his bloody talons to dispose of all kinds of miscreants. The show ran for eight seasons and achieved huge success, the kind of success that Mark Twitchell was dreaming of for himself as he wrote his first scripts and started to get comfortable behind a camera. You don't just write and produce a hit show overnight, though, so there were a few stepping stones to clear first. In 2007, while working a telecom sales job, he cut his teeth with his very own feature film, Star Wars Secrets of Rebellion. Hardly an original idea, but that was the point. This was a fully-fledged Star Wars fan prequel set shortly before the events of Episode four. I don't think you could just go right in someone else's world, can you? I know what you're thinking. Ugh. Fan fiction. Isn't that what? Isn't that when people write stories about Super Mario falling in love with that little mushroom guy or something? And yes, unfortunately, the vast majority of fan fiction is the product of sexually frustrated madness. But from the sounds of it, this was on the higher end of the quality spectrum. To their credit, the team actually managed to land a cameo from Jeremy Bullock, the original Boba Fett. Okay. I mean, that's some. Si- Wait, so they actually produced this? I thought he just wrote it, but they actually made this movie? Wow. That's pretty intense. Well, good for him. I mean, I'm saying good for him. I'm I'm aware he's probably going to become a horrible serial killer. So let's just say, okay, he made a movie. In an interview from back in 2006, the writer-producer-director Twitchell said, We tell the story of how Han Solo set the Kessel Run record, and how he names his ship, as well as revealing why he had to ditch his cargo. The alternate story tracks show what happened to the last Jedi left in the galaxy, apart from Ben and Yoda, how the Death Star plans were stolen, and what the Empire had to go through in order to track them down. And I'll make a little confession here. I have no idea what any of that means because I've I saw one Star Wars movie when I was a kid and I saw a new one recently with a, a, a ball rolling around and I didn't like either of them. so uh anyway, hopefully Callum will enlighten us a little bit more. Sounds like a hell of a lot like a, like solo and Rogue one. yeah, I got no idea what those are. Maybe Rogue One was the one I saw actually. Is that the one with that uh, the the ball robot? Stupid. <laughs> Smash that dislike button. But I'm sure this budget Canadian fan flick told the stories way better. We'll never know for sure, though. I'm not sure if that's sarcasm. Were these movies well-received or not? I don't know. Uh, you, you, Callum and the audience are in on a joke that I just don't get. We'll never know for sure, though, because the whole thing got caught in post-production, most likely due to certain events, which will soon become clear. The guy became a murderer. Foreshadowing, perhaps. As a result, Disney reaped all of that sweet, sweet Star Wars spin off cash and will never get the Boba Fett Chewbacca romance plotline we've all been crying out for. Damn you, George Lucas! I may have gone too far in a few places. After shooting Raps on his Star Wars film, Twitchell was hard at work on his next projects, both personal and professional. He had recently married a second wife with whom he had his first kid. Meanwhile, he drafted up a terrible sounding comedy called Day Players, raised a decent chunk for funding it, then rented out a garage as the set for a short thriller film. This was House of Cards, but not one in which Kevin Spacey delivers menacing soliloquies to camera for five years before being dragged out back and cancelled. Hunt or be hunted. This House of Cards was actually Twitchell's first attempt at emulating his new favorite show, Dexter, which had premiered two years before. You can actually find the whole script for this online, but if reading through a film student's derivative short film doesn't sound all that appealing, don't worry, I've already taken that bullet for you. Here's a rough overview. Callum, you researching legend. I remember you emailing me about this, being like, yeah, I've read all of his stuff. And I'm like, that is dedication um so thank you Callum everyone thanks you and I guess if it's uh, you said it was bad right so we didn't have to read it which is nice it is cool there's a there's a website called Drew's Scriptorama which has uh, tons of scripts like for you know um some of them are transcriptions which is way less interesting but a lot of them are like the original movie scripts and they have different versions of different movies so like you can uh, you can go look at some of your favorite movies and if they're big popular ones they'll probably have like or they often have like version one of the script or they have alternate scripts entirely so they'll have like uh maybe if they made i don't know batman movie in 2001 or whatever they'll also have a version that was pitched in 1999 that is a totally different movie um but it's crazy because you can read them and and like a movie plays out in your mind it's it's something it's it's really quite something you should give it a go the script The story opens with Roger, a middle-aged man sitting nervously at his computer. On his screen is a website for married people to find partners to cheat with, Naughty Roger. After closing his laptop, he says bye to his family and drives to a house somewhere across town. Before old Rog can do anything with his rod, Someone comes up behind him and gives him a prod. He's attacked from behind with a stun button and knocked out. He wakes up in a garage, gagged and taped to the chair. Across the room, he sees a laptop with superhero stickers on the back, sitting atop a table. The computer belongs to a character called Killer, which is kind of a spoiler when reading the script rather than watching it. Killer is wearing a black apron and gloves and a black hockey mask with a yellow bear claw motif across it. Although, to be honest, like he's wearing a hockey mask, you're taped up in, a, in someone's garage. It's like, look, look, we know, you know. It's not really a spoiler alert that that guy's the killer. Also, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I did watch all of Dexter, but it was a while ago when it ended in... It did really end in 2013. That seems so long ago. He just killed murderers, right? He didn't kill people who were doing, like, lesser crimes or, you know, adultery and stuff. He wasn't like, let's just murder them. He was like, let's murder the murderers. Anyway, what's worse is that the next few pages of dialogue are mostly dominated by Killer spewing out cliche lines, which I'm pretty sure were just plagiarized directly from Saw. You chose to ignore the consequences and all that. I don't know why I tried to do with a Batman voice there. What's the Saw guy like? I want to play a game. Whatever. Basically, the reason he brought Roger there is to punish him for his infidelity by stealing money from his credit card, threatening him and his family if he doesn't comply. First, he gets Roger's dating site and email passwords from him to delete the digital paper trail, then his PIN number. He tells Roger that if he plays it cool and doesn't try to report the whole affair to the police, he'll be able to go on with his life as usual. If not, it will be framed for murder and his family will die. Then Killer heads off to the ATM, apparently still dressed in his maniac-murderer get-up a little bit of a plot hole there that'll be polished up though when he returns he tells roger that actually he's decided to kill him explaining that his he realized his original plan was so stupid that he feels like changing it solid plot development mitchell that's some real david fincher esque intrigue after the arbitrary and underwhelming announcement killer goes about fulfilling the promise of his name but not before one last contrived slog Monologue. It sounds like Twitchell had a bit of an affection for Tarantino's Kill Bill, too, because the script directions reveal that the killer's weapon of choice is an exquisitely folded steel samurai sword. (laughs) This is so cliche, my dude, come on! After sending some emails from his victim's account claiming he ran off to start a new life, he takes the sword down from the wall, turns to Roger, and with no hints of irony says, Do you know what this is, Roger? This is a work of art. Samurai swords have a history of taking out the trash, my friend. They were used to defend and regain honor from a place of dishonour. This is a perfectly tempered folded steel weapon built for one purpose. The script doesn't specify whether the killer sports a fedora and a neckbeard poking out under the mask. But after that monologue, we can safely assume so. It's the sort of it's the sort of thing some YouTube incel says before slicing their fingers off trying to battle a watermelon. Oh no. Killer is a little more adept with the blade, though. He cuts Roger's head off before honorably hacking into pieces with a power tool and bagging up the pieces. Standard slasher film stuff is super weak. There's one last scene though that in the gar- grander scheme of things would prove pretty significant indeed. In the last few seconds of the film, a character called Writer, played by Switchell, is sitting in his home office. His distinctive superhero stick and laptop sits in front of him with the movie script on the screen. It's basically the script I just summarized for you, inspired by the events which any unfortunate viewers just had to sit through for the past 8 minutes. Then Writer, and I quote here, leans back staring intensely at his laptop screen and puts his hands behind his head, taking a deep sigh in relief that he's just finished something solid. I definitely wouldn't go that far. The last… The, yeah, I mean, no offence, but I'm pretty sure I could write that. It's, it's not, It's not Fincher, is it? That very last shot is him saying goodbye to his wife and walking outside with his bag of murder utensils slung over his arm. On his way out the door he says to his missus, it's true when they say that the best way to succeed is to write what you know. Very clever. Brilliant. What a development. Now, I know I like to take the piss, but that wasn't the worst ending in the world. I mean, Game of Thrones Season season 8 happened, as much as we'd like to forget. Never seen Game of Thrones? Definitely never seen Season 8. Another reference that maybe you get, and Callum gets, that I'm entirely left out of. However, if you were irritated by the little meta-flourish which capped off Twitchell's debut thriller, let me warn you, there's a whole lot more of where that came from. Oh, it's so cringe already, Callum. We know that this Canadian George Lucas Wannabe was a little short on fresh ideas, but his biggest act of creative recycling was yet to come. The Twist Open Scene. A 38-year-old oil-filled equipment manufacturer named John Brian Altinger, Johnny to his friends, sits at his laptop. On the screen is the popular dating site, Plenty of Fish, known as Old Person Tinder. To all the under-25s listening, Johnny had always been a tech fanatic, so while online dating was a taboo for some, he was diving right into it. Oh, Plenty of Fish! A notification pops up on the screen. He's received a message from a woman in his town. A good-looking woman, too. Her name is Jen. The two chat for a while before deciding to meet up on Friday, October the 10th, for a bit of whatever it is people do with attractive strangers they meet online. Scrabble, perhaps. No, Callum. That's not what they do. (laughs) If finding such a captivating board game partner seemed to be too good to be true for Johnny, that's because it was. Just like every damn time I click on one of those hot single MILFs in the area banners, it all turns out to be a bitter-tasting lie. How does anyone think that is possibly real these days? I mean, it's just… really? Fade to black interior, Johnny's apartment, daytime. A group of men force open the door and search around the place frantically, looking for any sign of their friend's whereabouts. It's now the middle of the week after Johnny went off to meet his new love interest in person, and things have taken a strange turn. A couple of days after the rendezvous, he had started messaging his friends and family, telling them that he and Jen had decided to take a spur-of-the-moment holiday to Costa Rica. As you do. His MSN messenger bio read, ''I've got a one-way ticket to heaven, and I'm not coming back.'' But Yeah. Also, MSN Messenger. This was when was this? Two thousand and I don't know. MSN Messenger. That was back in the day. That's got to be like what twenty years ago. Easy. An email also found its way into the HR inbox at Argus Machine Factory, where he worked, tendering his resignation. When the company replied asking where they should send his final paycheck, he never bothered getting back to them. It must have been a damn good hookup to make him give up his entire life after just one night, which is why everyone who knew Johnny started to grow worried. The police, however, were reluctant to devote much time to the case of a missing grown man who was still apparently in contact with his relatives. But the messages were just a bit off. Johnny usually signed off his emails with a smiley face or some little joke. However, the ones he'd been sending en masse recently were pretty robotic. The sort of messages you'd expect from someone who went off to join a cult, like... Do not fear, dear relatives-slash-friends, I am happy and well. Please don't try to contact me. I'm so happy." When they tried to get more information out of him, he just deflected their requests and told them that Phone Signal was too weak down in paradise to be able to call back. That's what led to the current scene, in which his friends have kicked in the door of his apartment to find out where Johnny had gotten off to. Johnny is dead. Friends, I mean, good for you, like, Johnny must have been a popular guy. For like people to go and like the police aren't doing anything. Let's go break into his flat and see if he's all right. I mean, I guess I'd do that for my friends. I'd do that for my friends. Yeah, for sure. I guess Johnny just had friends, which is nice. Also, I mean, when you meet someone, I've I've never been in the online dating scene because I've been, well, uh, with my current, now my wife for 10 years. So I kind of, yeah, no, I, I, and then I think, like, before that, online dating wasn't really, like, as popular as it is today. And surely the first date you do, right, you meet up somewhere in public. It's not, like, really attractive Jen or whatever invites him round to his house, uh, to her house, and he goes in and it turns out to be, like, a scary dude in a hockey mask. You meet attractive Jen at the, uh, at the restaurant, which is really super busy. Did I miss something? <laughs> oh... Well, whatever, mate. You made an error, didn't you? Didn't you? Strangely, he hadn't bothered taking his passport to Costa Rica, nor any of his clothes or other belongings. What's more, one of his two treasure motorbikes was parked out front without a cover, which he would never do. His friends decided that was all the confirmation they needed. Then they had to call, and they called the police again to report the suspicious circumstances. As I said, the cops had been reluctant to treat the disappearance as suspicious so far. but With it becoming increasingly clear that the person on the other end of the emails was not Johnny, they were forced to up their game. Good. Also, that missing passport, the the, the lack of missing passport. I mean, that's got to be a thing, right? Because you can't just go to Costa Rica without a passport. They're going to be like, go home. They're not going to... You're not going to get into the airport. Investigating the Garage By this point, I think you've probably already predicted where this blockbuster is heading. With the pressure on to find out about what happened to Johnny, the police decided to follow up on the strongest lead they had. It was handed to them by one of Johnny's mates. Dale Smith. He had been suspicious of the whole situation from the get-go, on account of the strange stipulations the lucky lady had for Johnny's arrival. He was to park in the alley, out back of her house, and walk through the open shutter doors of the detached garage to get into the property. Pretty strangely specific. Yes, Johnny mate, go to a busy restaurant. That's where you should be meeting the random person who you met on the internet and only text chatted with. What is wrong with you? Dale asked Johnny to give him a call when he arrived at the love den and took down the address in case anything happened. When the police initially came to interview Johnny's friends for the first time, time, Dale was able to provi- provide them with details that he had noted down. Good man, Dale. Let's all be more like Dale. Yeah, Johnny has good friends. And that wasn't all. As it turns out, he did receive the call that he asked for. He was right to be suspicious. Something seemed off when Johnny arrived. Instead of a beautiful blonde greeting him when he walked into the garage, he bumped into some pudgy film geek showing off his film props. Johnny didn't give much of a description, just that he was taken aback by the whole thing, his date wasn't home yet, and that he decided to leave. Not long after, Dale received an email suggesting that it had all been a misunderstanding, which read, She's home now. I'm heading over again. Hee hee. Dale told all of that to the police. You were able to do a quick check of the Edmonton City records. Why are you going to someone's garage? You went there once, it was creepy, and you're like, yeah, I'll go back. Dude, think with your head and not with your penis. Come on, please. Uh Dale told that the police were able to do a quick check of the Edmonton City Records to find out the name of the tenant. A group of Mexican immigrant workers were set up in the house, but the garage was leased out separately. As you might have guessed, the name listed was Mark Twitchell. This garage was the exact same place where he had bought, brought the painful to read House of Cards to life just two weeks prior. Oh wait, was this actually called House of Cards? It's a much worse version of it. Since it was a film set, plenty of people had come and gone through the place. The police had to ascertain who would have access to the unit, and who the mystery gal Jen could have been. Him being the primary keyholder, they asked a bewildered Twitchell to come down and open up his garage for them on the 19th of October. He gladly obliged, driving to the south side of town to help the police in their investigation. When he met the officers at the garage, however, he discovered that the padlock on the latch was different from the one he had fastened onto it before. The officers managed to pry the screws out of the latch, and Twitchell swung the door open for them. Inside, he noticed that some things were out of place, trash bags were missing, and a steel oil drum ordered for the film had seemingly been used as a fire pit. After that, he went with the police to the station to give a statement. In an interview with one Detective Tabler, the aspiring artist revealed that he had been back to the garage on the afternoon of the 10th to collect some trash, then again on the 15th to drop off some cleaning materials, which would be used to scrub away any of the sticky fake blood mixture made of corn syrup left over from the film shoot. He didn't know anything about a Jen or a Johnny. His answers to the practical questions were pretty aimless and rambling. What really got him talking, though, were questions about his film projects. Seriously, the 47-page transcript could have been cut down to five if the man had just shut up about Star Wars. It follows a rhythm of questions about padlocks and latches, followed by minutes-long monologues about breaking into the film industry. Each time (laughs) this guy just wants a friend, please talk to me about my career, It's like, you're in the police station. You're not here to have a chat. Each time Detective Dabbler snaps him back on topic, Twitchell soon finds another chance to go off on a waffling tangent. In the end, though, the detective is able to get a decent account of events for Went to the garage two times recently, didn't see anyone there, didn't notice anything strange. When told that Johnny met a man inside the garage, Twitchell replies, that would explain some things, meaning the mysterious change of padlock in the past few days. He explains that it couldn't have been related in any way to his crew or the movie, because all the production instructions came from him. Someone must have broken in and potentially used the garage for some illicit purposes. Cue more verbal detours with Twitchell bragging about how great his budget sets on Secret of the Rebellion looked and ranting about his past bankruptcy before Tabler desperately tries to wrap things up, much like everyone who's ever met Twitchell at a party must have done. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, this guy. Also, I'm a detective, I'll just be like, yo, I got crimes to solve, dude. Get out of here. Interview over. And I'll dramatically reach over and stop the tape recorder because, unlike at a party, you can justing leave. Given his compliance during that interview and lack of any clear evidence of foul play, the police had no real reason to definitively suspect Twitchell. However, Detective Tabler couldn't quite get over the coincidence. The man had been shooting a film about an abduction and murder at the exact same place the police were investigating a suspicious disappearance. Things would only get stranger from here. By the next day, the police had also gotten the chance to interview some other witnesses, including Twitchell's production staff. They were kind of an- they were kind enough to provide a copy of the script for House of Cards. The similarities between the film's story and the real-life details of the case were undeniable. So not only we've, I, I have brought up on casual criminalists a number of times the importance of if you are a criminal, please don't write down your crimes. Like writing down your crimes is never a good idea. I don't know why you do it, but often criminals do when they get into trouble. This also comes up on my other channels. I've got several YouTube channels all the time. Don't do it. And also, so this guy not only did he write down his crimes, he made a goddamn screenplay out of his crimes. Convinced that there was something he wasn't telling them, the cops decided to have another crack at Twitchell on the 20th. This time, the slash rate Scorsese was put in the hot seat by a veteran homicide detective called Bill Clark, the new lead on the investigation ever since it had been officially upgraded to a suspicious disappearance. He would be Twitchell's arch nemesis, the Vader to his Kenobi. In interview, part two, the Edmonton PD strikes back. Now, if you're looking for a crash course in how to be a world-class police investigator, I recommend giving this transcript a read. There's more genuine drama in those 89 pages than anything our antihero ever cooked up in his brief career. Detective Clark is careful to say right off the bat that he doesn't want to hear a damn thing about any films. He's here to understand exactly what went down in the garage. The other guys warned him. They were like, please, don't go in there. He's going to talk to you about films forever. You gotta cut it off at the pass, tell him no. After that, he gives his first lesson in Interrogation 101. When a nervous man wants to talk, let him talk himself into knots. And Christ did Twitchell do just that. There were so many amendments to his story, you'd think he was workshopping a second draft for creative writing class. He now claims that his car had been broken into recently and several things have been stolen, mainly a pair of sunglasses and the rental receipts for a storage unit. He speculated that the thief could have thrown the paperwork away, and someone else picked it up, and then maybe went to the garage, and no, 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 he realized that was a stupid angle halfway through and just abandoned it. Better to go with the far more believable story that the missing man had randomly approached him and sold him his car. Yep, the police knew Twitcher was in possession of the victim's ride by this point, so he invented the most bad cap story to explain it. Okay, dude, what is going on? None of this is at all believable. And it's like, I don't believe this. And I'm not a veteran homicide detective. You're not going to pull the wool over Detective Clark's eyes with this one. On the 15th, while on his way to drop off the cleaning materials at the garage, he stopped to take a call at a strip mall. Some guy knocked on his car window and told him, I shacked up with this really rich lady. Uh, You know, it's like a sugar mama kind of situation and she's going to take care of me. And she's even going to buy me a new car when we get back from a vacation that we're going to take. So I'm looking to unload mine and don't really care that much how much I get for it. You know, how much do you have on you?" Apparently the guy agreed to pay the joke price of $40, so Twitchell directed him to the garage just a couple of blocks away where he handed over the money and took the registration papers. Apparently the gentleman had introduced himself as Martin and had a Celtic knot tattoo on one shoulder. Strange, because when he checked the registration papers later, he thought they said Mark K, or something similar, he wasn't sure. After a hasty transaction, the mystery man took off and Twitchell called his friend to take the car to his driveway, since he couldn't operate a manual gearbox. Detective Clark pushes him on why he apparently didn't think to get a bill of sale, telling him, come on, you're not a 16-year-old kid here. But Twitchell just continues playing dumb as to how a car sale actually works. No, no officer, I really am 16 years old mentally, I swear. Dude, what is going on? You are just spinning so many crazy stories. Also, who buys a car and doesn't think there's going to be some paperwork to go along with this? It's like, yeah, here's a car. I'll give you $40 for it. And then you just take the car away. You're going to need... Don't they call it... I feel like I've seen enough movies. Is it called a green slip or green papers or something? You know, when they'll go... For, they'll go isn't that in, uh, in Greece where they race for green slips or pink slips? Something like this. You get something with a car in America. That's how it works. And that's how it works everywhere. Here, they're green as well. Or maybe they're pink in this. I don't know. Whatever. There's pe- Why are we going on about this? But there is paperwork when you buy a car, yes? The overgrown teen was no match for this grizzled old cop. Again and again, Detective Clark stopped Twitchell dead whenever he tried to skip forward to the parts that he'd already prepared for in his head, forcing him to fill the gaps with fluff and nonsense. Then, when he gets to the end of the story, Clark makes him run through it all in reverse, much like how traffic police bamboozle drunk drivers with the backwards alphabet trick. This gives Twitchell more chances to trip up, which he continues to do like a newborn giraffe running the 500-meter hurdles. After that, the seasoned detective leaves the suspect stewing in the interview room for a full 30 minutes before coming back to deliver some verbal right hooks. Things were about to get tense for Twitchell when Detective Clark point-blank asks him, Do you think if there's been a foul play to John that the person who did this deserves a second chance under any circumstances? Uh, I would say no replies twitchell on the tape you can see the anxiety start to creep in as the suspect realizes that his story might not be quite as waterproof as he assumed why for any brief flash of light moments would you believe that your story was watertight you literally made up the craziest stories (laughs) another 20 minutes of stewing alone in the interview room before the glorious final act the gloves are fully off now and twitchell's day week and life are all about to be succinctly ruined clark straight up tells him There's something else I want to tell you, Mark, and that's that there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that you're involved in the disappearance of John Altinger. No doubt in my mind at all, Mark. The detective lays all his cards out on the table. First, the neighbor spotted Twitchell going to change the lock on the carriage. Dude, come on! Come on, do better! The same lock which he told the police he had no idea about. On top of that, officers had already spoken to his friend Joss, who he called to move the car, and their stories didn't match. Reality was coming down hard, but Twitchell still couldn't get his head out of TV land. He says he feels like he's and i quote in the twilight zone but clark tells him get out of your film producer mode because this is real life all right real life if you were telling me the truth you would have one story one story that would flow from beginning to end and you could repeat that 100 times with no changes in the story Yours is so bad. It's a shame that Cut Rate Kubrick wasn't taking notes, because it probably have picked up some tips on how to write better dialogue. The detective, this yeah, this whole interview scene this Caleb said is way more compelling than any of the movies that or films or TV stuff that he wrote. Undoubtedly. The detective doesn't bother with any praise sandwiches as he dishes out some harsh, harsh criticisms of Twitchell's narrative. Namely, that he's never mentioned any car sale in the first interview. He gave three different reasons for why he stopped for gas and threw out dozens of little half baked red herrings. All Twitchell does is shut down. He admits he's scared, alludes to his own guild, and asks for some, for some time to think and sleep, i.e., cook up a new story that the neighbours have completely screwed him over. He's not going to cook up it. any. <laughs> I need some time to think and make up some new lies, which are going to be wildly unbelievable, because you're a terrible liar despite. well you are also also you're a terrible storyteller so no surprises laptop and car for the moment twitchell was free to go the statements of the other witnesses weren't yet complete enough to solidify the suspicion into an arrest warrant. maybe you should flee to costa rica But it was only a matter of time. Soon the neighbours would pick the wannabe director's picture out of a lineup, and he'd be taken in for good. For the moment, they just placed him on round-the-clock surveillance. While they waited, there was plenty more to chew on. Twitchell had driven his car to the station for the interview and the police luckily were able to seize it. (laughs) That's brilliant. Don't pick him up. Have him drive his car here and we'll take it. He can figure out his own way home. And now we've got his car. Uh, That is, gee, I like it. If they struggled finding it in the car park, the license plate DRK JEDI would have been a dead giveaway. Inside the Jedi Master's starship, they found his laptop, which had Spider-Man stickers plastered on the back. Sound familiar? Yes, it does, Callum. The digital forensics team went through the whole thing with a tooth comb, presumably trudging through all sorts of script fragments and test shoots that, thankfully, never saw the light of day. But the most interesting find was very deep inside the deleted files of the computer. Oh no, again, Like, don't write down your crimes or, you know… Do stuff with your crimes. And if you're deleting stuff, make sure you empty the recycle bin. Or, I mean, these are probably detectives, so use like one of those shredding programs. Get rid of your stuff. Come on. Come on! (laughs) You're all terrible criminals. I know I'll be giving some of you sweaty palms by saying this, but when you delete files from your recycle bin, they're not actually gone for good. Anyone with the will and know-how could easily dig into your laptop and recover the clip of that ill-fated evening with the whipped cream and chocolate sauce. You know the one, you dirty bastard. Um, that's true for a while, right? You can delete them, but then when new stuff is added to your computer, they'll eventually be written over. So if you've recently deleted stuff, it's still going to be recoverable, but not after some time. Don't panic, though. Nobody cares what you get up to in your spare time, unless you're suspected of murder, of course. Yeah, hopefully you're not. (laughs) The cops were probably expecting the usual digital dross, which turns up in these searches. But they ended up finding what was every investigator's dream, something which not only blew the case open, but did so in excruciatingly candid detail. Oh, Mark, have you been writing down your crimes again? Please no. Several days after Twitchell walked free, Detective Clark was just about to wrap up for the day. On the way out the door, a colleague stopped him and gestured towards a stack of papers sitting on his desk. Apparently the IT guys had something uh, something for him, and it was related to the Twitchell case. The detective flicked through the first few sheets of the pile and couldn't believe what he was seeing. Just to confirm he wasn't losing it, he read over the first line again. This story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. <laughs> you wrote down your crimes, which we talked about so much in the most obvious way. Clark turned to his co-worker. It's a diary of how he killed the guy. and that's everybody. Oh, I'm excited for next week because that is quite, I mean, he's going to prison, right? He's definitely going to prison for sure. Uh, but I feel that's a pretty good place to end it. Pretty good cliffhanger for next week. Thank you, Callum, for putting this together as always. Thank you, Jen, who does the video and the, uh, the sound effects that you hear throughout on this one. Uh, if you're watching this, please do subscribe to this channel. Hit that like button if you didn't enjoy it. There is a dislike button provided for you to use. If you're listening to this, leave us a review. That would be grand. And I'll see you next week.